0: Uh, a thousand new spring couples were surveyed, and you let us know what are your greatest needs. And I got to be honest with you, I was surprised and delighted by today's need that you told us you'd like to hear about, and that's spiritual intimacy. And that's brilliant on your part, and I want to do my best today to be an asset to you on developing spiritual intimacy. And I, I'm thinking that what is behind that is a quest for people saying we need to be closer to each other and together we need to be closer to God. You know, uh, I grew up in a traditional church and pastored one for a lot of years. And back in the old days when I used to counsel couples, it was very common for me to have a couple come into my office and I would ask them, well, what is your your problem? And they would say, pastor, our problems are spiritual. I was delighted to hear that because I do think most problems have a spiritual component to them. So I would say, well, help me understand that. And oftentimes there would be one of the two who was going to sort of carry the football for that conversation. And if it was the woman, it would go something like this. Well, our problem in our marriage is that my husband is not the spiritual leader in the home. Well, okay, that's, that's reasonable. So I would say, well, tell me what that looks like. Well, he doesn't lead the family in prayer, and he won't lead the family in devotions, and he won't have devotions with me. Well, that's a, those are best practices, and I, and I sort of hear that. So I, I, I feel that. So, but as she would continue to talk, I would often, not always, but I would often discover something. What she was really wanting was she was wanting her agenda to be pressed by her husband and for him to juice it up with God behind it. Or sometimes the man would be the one who would talk, and ordinarily here's how it would come out the man would say well our problems are spiritual and my wife is not a spiritual person and i keep quoting the bible to her and she won't listen to me and so he would usually have his bible open at that point and say would you preach this verse to my wife (laughs) well ordinarily i was talking to a controlling person there too so i heard that a lot through the years and so you need to understand I believe that all of us should be listening to the Word of God. We should all be obedient to God's Word. I think it's a best practice to pray together. I think it's a best practice to read scriptures together. All those things will help you. But at the core, there has to be spiritual intimacy. So today, I want to talk about spiritual intimacy and how you can have it in your relationship. I need to let you know that every time we do a couples um, series, I'm always concerned that many in the congregation will say, well, it really doesn't apply to me because I'm single. Or it could be that there are a few of us who are up in years and some of us who are up in years may say, well, Mark, I'm no longer married. My, my wife, my husband has passed. Well, there are a couple things I wanna to say to those who are in that category. First of all, if you're young and single, it is for you more than anybody else because you have an opportunity to get on the ground floor and learn these things before you make the mistakes that some of the rest of us have made. And if you're up in years, hey, who knows? I mean, you know, you may find that special person even yet. And here's what I do know you love somebody who is in a couple relationship. So let's talk for a few moments about spiritual intimacy. First of all, we need to define the term intimacy. Because in our culture today, if we use the term intimate, what we're normally talking about is sex. If you're asked, have you been intimate with him yet? The question is really, have you had sex with him? Have you been intimate with her? you know, Then it's all about sex. Well, let's discuss that for a moment because even though sexual intimacy, physical intimacy, as we'll see in a moment, isn't real intimacy, there is an element of truth in the usage of the word. Let me give you an illustration of that. I grew up in a traditional church, as I said a moment ago, and I grew up with a very traditional translation of the Bible, the King James Version. And in the King James Version, a lot of times the translators are trying to give some sort of euphemistic expression to stay away from the obvious. So how many of you grew up with the, don't raise your hand, but how many of you grew up with the King James Version of the Bible and you read Adam knew his wife, you know, this person knew his wife, or she knew his husband, or they knew each other, and it's like, well, I'm glad glad they shook hands and met each other. No, 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 they had sex. So consequently, that word know was utilized there. Well, it's interesting because if you go back to the origin of the word intimacy, it's Latin, the Latin for intimacy means to know in an innermost way. That's maybe the best way of explaining it. So I guess typically, or or if you got really right down to it, you could say that sexual intimacy is perhaps a usable phrase because a person gets to know someone. But I wanna just give you something that our culture so needs to hear. Physical intimacy without spiritual intimacy is fraud. Could I say that one more time? Physical intimacy without spiritual intimacy is fraud. You don't need to raise your hand on this, but how many of you have had sex with somebody, and when it was finished, you knew her body and she knew your body, but you didn't know what in the world that meant because you didn't have intimacy? We, we don't write checks anymore. We use debit cards. But back in the day when we used to write checks, there, there was a crime. We used to call it writing hot checks. Someone would write a check, but there wasn't money in the bank in order to sustain that check, and so we called it a hot check. People went to jail for that. Well, today, we have millions of people writing intimacy hot checks because they are physically intimate with someone with whom they have no spiritual intimacy, and consequently, it just doesn't mean anything. So today, we're going in pursuit of spiritual intimacy, and because I really believe spiritual intimacy is intimacy, I'm just going to refer to intimacy from now on because, again, we'll talk about sex. We have a talk coming up in this series that'll be helpful, but I want you to understand that sexual intimacy is only meaningful if intimacy exists in the first place. So what is it that we need to know about intimacy? Here's the first thing. And our culture does not know this. This is worth driving here for today on a cold early morning, okay? Intimacy doesn't just happen naturally. You know, um, I don't like Hallmark movies, but I've been in the room when a few have played. (laughs) And I'm not picking on Hallmark movies because really a lot of movies are like this. A lot of books are like this. But you know how it is in the movie. You know, boy meets girl, girl meets boy. And it looks like they're not going to get together. It looks like they're going to get together. It looks like they're not going to get together. It looks like they're going to get together. And it goes back and forth. And you stay there for an hour and a half and you watch the thing. And finally they get together. They have stars in their eyes and they're soft airbrushed images. And then they go off into the sunset. And you know what's presumed by that? Well, you know what? The right person found the right person and intimacy just happen. if you're really old you can remember you know in the fairy tales and they lived happily ever after well there is this very very false spurious presumption that when you find the right person intimacy just happens but intimacy doesn't just happen distance is what just happens and especially in our culture today, because, and let me just talk frankly about where we are in our times, what happens in marriage today, or in long-term relationships, is that two people who are very selfish get together. And so consequently, they have been baptized in the religion of self, and so there is kind of like a geometric proof of logic that takes place that goes something like this, and there are five things. Number one, I am a free agent sort of like, you know what a contract worker is? Contract worker is there as long as the relationship benefits both the employer and the worker. And and, and consequently, when that stops, then the worker and the company go their separate ways. So today, when it comes to marriage, there are a lot of people that are contract workers. I am a free agent. And secondly, I should be happy. I've talked to people who are about to go out and do the most... Incredibly wrong things. And when I would ask them, why are you going to do such a thing? They would say this to me God wants me to be happy. Well, let me tell you what God wants you to be. God wants you to be holy. And by holy, I mean right. See, what happens for a lot of people when they say, God wants me to be happy, their term for happy isn't the right term. What they're thinking about is instant gratification. And so what they're saying is God is, God is comfortable with me being, in, in God experiencing instant gratification. I got to tell you, one of the things that just makes me want to throw up is when someone is about to do something diametrically opposite to the Bible, and I share with them, this is not going to end well, and this person will smugly say, well, I prayed about it. That is nuts. In fact, let me go a step further. It is blasphemy to say you pray about something that God has said is wrong. That is blasphemy, and so consequently, there's this feeling. Well, I should be happy. Well, ultimately, if if happiness is truly defined, I would agree with that. God does want you to be happy, but He wants you to be happy in the long term. But that's the first. Let me go back over this again. I'm a free agent. Number two, I should be happy. Number three, it is the responsibility of you to make me happy. You know, if I'm in a relationship with you, it is your. It is. The responsibility of you to make me happy. Um, Can I say something real quickly here? Nobody, hear me well please. Nobody can make you happy. Nobody can make you mad. Happiness is a choice. Anger is a choice. Listen guys, I know some people that are in egregious circumstances who are happy. I know some people that have the world on a string who are unhappy. Nobody can make you happy. Those are choices that we make. I heard the story of a couple of construction workers who were on a job site, and lunchtime came, and they both sat down and opened up their lunch pails, and one guy looked, and he said, he looked at a bologna sandwich. I hate bologna sandwiches. Every day, a bologna sandwich. Bologna sandwich. I wish just once I could have something else for lunch, but it's bologna, bologna, bologna every day. And his friend said, why don't you just tell your wife you don't like bologna? He said, wife, I'm not married. I make my own sandwiches. Listen, baby, when it comes to happiness, you make your own sandwiches. (laughs) Okay, let's go over that. I am a free agent. I should be happy. It's the responsibility of people in my life to make me happy. Number four, if I'm not happy, it's somebody's fault. Somebody has let me down. And number five, I need to change people. And that's what happens. Let me just make this personal. If I felt that way, I would say, I'm a free agent in this marriage with Mary Alice. I'm here as long as I'm happy. Number two, I should be happy. Number three, it's Mary Alice's responsibility to make me happy. Number four, if I'm not happy, it's Mary Alice's fault. And if Mary Alice is not making me happy, then I should change. That is what's going on in our culture. So when two people believe that, what happens? Well, first thing that's going to happen is trouble. Because you got two people both believing the same thing. And so you have two people that are unhappy, and it's the other person's fault. And then um, here's what else can happen. Divorce. If I need to change people, then I need to change. And so consequently, it's time for us to just tear this marriage license up and start all over again. And then in our culture today, there are people who give up on marriage. And the sad thing for me well, let me just tell you this. Back in the days when I used to counsel and I would sit across from a couple who were having trouble and they were talking about getting a divorce, I would always try to take them back to their wedding. Listen, guys, I don't do weddings anymore, but back in the day, i have probably done a 1,000 weddings. And I would stand in front of the couple and they would look at each other with all these beautiful eyes and flowers and music and all this stuff going on and guys and gals dressed in all their finery. And they're, I mean, here's the thing. I, I have tried to get vows out of people who are so in love. I don't think they, they just barely say their vows. So how do they get from there to sitting in my office, sometimes the same couples, and, and they're saying, we want to get a divorce? When I would ask them why, I heard this so many times, if I had a nickel for every time I heard it, we could build this building out here. It was like, Mark, we just drifted apart. Well, you know what, here's the problem. The problem is not that they drifted apart, the problem is they were drifting. Because you will always drift apart. You won't drift together. You will always drift apart. Drifting is the problem, not the direction. So what I want us to understand is intimacy will not just happen. Distance is what will happen. And distance happens because of self-interest. You know, the weird thing about that couple that I just described is if you met them in the early days of their relationship, they would swear to you that they had intimacy. But here, this is huge, okay? Just please don't miss this. They didn't have intimacy. They had another word that comes from the Latin. They had infatuation. Now, infatuation is attraction, and a couple, oftentimes, who is in infatuation, will believe what they have is intimacy. But for all of you who are single, please hear me on this one: infatuation is artificial intimacy. I mean, you have this closeness and this feeling of closeness. By the way, I just I gotta, I gotta tell you this: you already know the the Latin etymology for intimacy. It means to be close in the innermost way. You know what infatuation means? It comes from the Latin words in infatuo. Infatuo means foolishness. It means in foolishness. Well, I mean, there's a beauty to that foolishness. I mean, but here is the thing about it. See, intimacy, hear me out. Intimacy requires knowledge. I cannot be intimate with Mary Alice if I don't know her. <laughs> Infatuation exists because we don't have knowledge. See, that's the thing. When you're infatuated with somebody, you see that person at their best. That person is hiding their faults and flaws from you. I mean, here's the thing. When you're dating somebody and you're in infatuation, you send them selfies of you in beautiful scenarios and beautiful situations. You send them selfies of you at your best. You do not show them a selfie of when you first get up in the morning. (laughs) That is the nature of infatuation is each person is presenting themselves at their very best, and consequently there is this glorious feeling that exists, but it exists because we don't have knowledge. We don't know their quirkiness yet. We don't know their problems. We don't know their baggage. We just know them at their very best. Let me me illustrate this and take it away from the pressure, because here's the deal. All of you who are in... Couples out there, some of you are like, do we really have intimacy? Am I still infatuated? Boy Mark is right. I wish I'd known the junk in the trunk before I'd <laughs> gotten with this guy. So let me just take it away from couples for a moment. Back in the day when we used to couple, there was a family came in and see me, and they, <laughs> you know, a lot of people have the idea that counseling works like a car wash, you know, you just gotta like. Take her, You know how you take your car through the car wash, you go through it and you come out and you're clean. And so there's some people have this idea, well, I'm gonna go to counseling, and I'm just like go through the, and, and so this family was bringing their 15 year old daughter to go through the car wash of my office. And so uh, <laughs> they were like, oh, we just cannot handle this 15 year old girl, which probably everybody, every parent who's had 15 year old girl, 15 year old boy felt that way. And so they just like, we, we brought our 15 year old daughter here for you to fix her. I'm like, okay, great. Um, <laughs> So, and I could tell, boy, she didn't want to be there. She would have rather been at the dentist than be in that meeting. So I asked her, I said, well, tell me, tell, me, tell me how you feel. She said, well, I hate my parents. I said, well, okay. Uh, let's start there. <laughs> and she said, I think my parents hate me. And I said, why do you think they hate you? Because they just won't let me do what I want to do. Okay. She said, you know, the only friends I have, the only people I can trust, are my friends at school. Now, you know why that works in her mind? Because those friends at school have no responsibility. See, she can be infatuated with her friends because (laughs) she doesn't know what it would be like if they were responsible for taking care of her. Her 15-year-old friends at school don't pay her mortgage. They do not pay her utility bills. They do not keep her warm in the winter or or cool in the summer. They do not buy her clothes. They do not buy her food. They do not insure her, make sure that she has health coverage. Consequently, she feels that they are the only friends that she has. Now, here's the thing you and I both understand. If I said to her, you know what, I'm going to let your parents leave the room, and I'm going to call in all your 15-year-old friends, and from now on, they're going to be responsible to provide a house for you, utilities for you, clothing for you. you know, It wouldn't be very long before she would say, those kids at school are not my friends. You starting to get where I'm going with this? See, infatuation exists because we don't have knowledge. Knowledge blows the fog of infatuation away. And we can't have intimacy until we have knowledge, and knowledge blows infatuation away. So here's the thing. You you, you meet somebody, and, and then as you get to know them, it blows away the fog of infatuation, but it opens the door to having true intimacy. And let me just talk to all the single people here for a moment. Don't pick somebody during infatuation. Wow, Just bearing my heart here for a moment. Back in the day when I would counsel, a lot of times I'd have a man or a woman in my office and they were both ready to get a divorce. And so they sort of like stopped by my office on the way to the lawyer to see if it was okay with God. <laughs> True. True. Not that I'm God, they just... So um guys guys I'm off so I'm, I'm getting divorced I'm just i have had it I'm out of there so he's like uh, tell me if I'm okay with God and I said well you know I mean is there adultery in the relationship is there abuse in the relationship that's, that's pretty much it um, as far as you know god things and I'm like no 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 she hasn't cheated on me I just don't like her anymore I'm tired of her he's... And I'd say, well, you know, you, you, you can't get a divorce, biblically speaking. I mean, you can do whatever you want to do in America, but you, biblically you can't do it. At that moment, that guy gets angry at me. Now, I want to tell you something. I never said this, I don't think. But I felt like saying it about 500 times. I'm like, why are you getting angry at me? I didn't pick her. I mean, frankly, after what you've told me, I wouldn't have picked her. <laughs> but you picked her. She's your choice. Now, I never did say that because that wouldn't have been helpful at that moment. But I wanted to. Now, let me talk to you single people for a moment. Man, you better check under the hood. <laughs> I used to have this car I loved. It was beautiful. It had cutting-edge technology. It had every technical gadget you could have, and 400 horsepower, almost. I I, I loved it. I I would get out on the highway, and I would step down on the—I hope the police are not listening right now. I I, I would just step down on the accelerator, and I loved how the cars behind me just disappeared in my rearview mirror. It was—I loved that car. The only problem is, it had a little electronic glitch in it, and, and it wasn't hydraulic, it was part of the electronic system that you'd be driving along and you put your foot on the brake and it would just go all the way to the floor. And I had it in the shop time and time and time again, they said, say, well, okay, we fixed it, it's okay, and I would get back out and the brakes would work for a while and then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, the brake would go all the way to the floor. <laughs> You know, I meet people like that. It's like, well, Mark, he made me laugh, and we just fell in love, and he was just so cool, and he had all these things. And, and you know, and, But the problem is, the problem, the, what you have to have in a relationship is not there. You better check under the hood, and you better check the baggage in the trunk, too, by the way. Now, I'll just leave it right there, because that's for all of my single friends here at New Spring here today. Well, what happens a lot of times is when a relationship is put together on infatuation and people believe they have intimacy, then when they really get to know the other person, they will say, well, he wrecked my intimacy here, or he wrecked, or she wrecked my intimacy. So as we've looked today at infatuation and we've looked at intimacy, let's just pull back and see what we've learned right now. Okay. If you think about everything that we've covered up to this point, you really have this already. But let's summarize it in a simple statement: intimacy is knowledge plus love. <laughs> All week long, as I was getting ready for this message, I tried to tell my friends and uh, what I saw intimacy as being, and I could see their eyes glaze over. It, and I uh, can I try it on you? Okay. Intimacy, the words that come to my mind are, and still, and still. See, the inventor of intimacy, in fact, the ultimate example of intimacy is God. Because remember, it's knowledge plus love. I mean, God is never infatuated with you. Listen to what the Bible says. He knows, that's knowledge, he knows where I am and he knows what I've done. And then in Luke 12, Jesus said, the very hairs of your head are numbered. You know, a stranger can count your fingers, but God knows the number of hairs on your head. And then in Psalm 139, this is wonderful. Listen to all the expressions for knowledge, okay? Oh, Lord, you have examined my heart. You know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts when I'm I'm far off. You see me when I travel, when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. And still, in Jeremiah chapter 31, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. See, God knows you better than you know yourself, because you don't know how many hairs you have on your head unless you shave it. God knows you better than you know yourself. And still, he says, I've loved you with a love that's not going to go away. You know, I don't, my, my talk is not about this today, but could I just say this? A lot of us have distance between ourselves and God because what we're really wanting is God to be infatuated with us. We want to do something that impresses God, we want to do something that makes God love us. Well, God is never infatuated with, every, with anyone, He knows everything about us. He knows us too well to be infatuated with us, but He always sees us through the lens of love. If I'm talking to anybody here today and you feel distance between yourself and God because you know all the things you do wrong, I want you to know God knows you better than you know yourself and still he loves you. Intimacy is knowledge plus love. All right. Everything we've said up to this point leads us to this mountain peak understanding. You ready for this? The basic Requirement for intimacy is safety. Think about that. If I know you and everything about you and I still love you, then you are safe with me. Knowledge plus love is intimacy and the requirement, the basic requisite of intimacy is safety. Now, here's why this is practical. Because a love relationship exposes us to maximum scrutiny. You know, we talked about a few moments ago that when you're dating, you see the person at their best, they, you, they, they see you at your best. But when you are together, it exposes you to maximum scrutiny. It exposes you to maximum vulnerability. It exposes you, It exposes what you keep hidden from public consumption to that person. So, the question is, are you going to be safe? After that person has seen everything about you, knows your quirkiness, knows your issues, knows your problems, are you going to be safe with that person? What will that person do with that information? Will they sort of like devalue you and mark you down like an item that's on the clearance table at the store? Will they begin to look at you through the eyes of contempt? Will they roll their eyes? Will the person betray you? See, here's the thing I found out when I would talk to those couples, where really you had a controlling person in my office trying to like leverage God to get their agenda done. I mean, oftentimes I would have a woman who was saying, "I want my husband to pray with me," but she used her tongue like an Uzi on him. There's not going to be any intimacy there because he's not safe. I mean, for a guy that like hits his wife over the head, not literally, but with a Bible, you know, 48-pound Bible, this is what God says, you gotta do it. There's not gonna be any intimacy there. She's not safe with him. He can talk about God all day long. Dust in the wind. Hey, what do you do when you're not safe? I hide. Don't you? I mean, I've talked to couples for years, and the guy's like, you know what? I'm just trying to tell her all the things that she's doing wrong. I'm just trying to help her be a good wife and a good mother. I don't know why she's hiding from me. I do. She's not safe. You know, it's just like, I don't know why he acts that way. And I try to explain to him, explain to him, explain to him. And I tell him, my dad used to do it this way, and he just won't get it. And I don't know why he's hiding from me. Well, I do. He's not safe. Prime essential requisite of intimacy is safety. All right. How do you build an intimate relationship? I'll give you about six minutes and I'll be, I'll be finished. <laughs> How many of you are still wrestling with your New Year's resolutions? I am. You know, you know what I've noticed about my New Year's resolutions? They're never complicated, they're always simple, they're just hard. You know, how do you lose weight? Yeah. Watch calorie count and exercise. I mean, that took me, what, half a second to say? It's not rocket science, it's just hard. Why, why, why are things simple and hard? Because it goes against our, our nature. So I need to let you know that you're not gonna drift into an intimate relationship. You're going to have to be intentional and you're going to have to take it on as something that, that's not difficult or, or not, not complicated, but, but difficult, okay? First of all, let me give you a scripture verse. When my mother-in-law passed away back in March, and I preached her funeral, I preached it from Proverbs 31. Now, for those of you who know your Bible real well, you know that Proverbs 31 is Bathsheba's advice to Solomon on picking out a wife. And it's the chapter about the virtuous woman And my mother-in-law certainly was an enormous example of that. But I remembered as, of course, it was an emotional time for me. But I remembered as I was preparing for that sermon, I just fell in love with verse 12. And here's what it says. She brings him good and not harm all the days of his life. Now, it wasn't until yesterday when I was just sitting thinking about this talk before the 4 o'clock service that I figured out why I love that verse so much. I'm sure she lived that, but you know why I love that? She taught her daughter that. That is what she taught her daughter. For the last 40 years, I have been married to a woman who lived her mother's teaching in her life. See, when Mary Alice and I got married, I was 21 years old. She said to Mary Alice, if you ever get into an argument with Mark, don't come talk to me about it because I'll take his side. That's a fact. (laughs) for all the years I was a young preacher back in those days preachers used to tell mother-in-law jokes when they were warming up an audience I never could tell mother-in-law jokes because my mother-in-law was my biggest fan the last time I got to see her was in January I was speaking in West Texas and flew through Fort Worth had a chance to see my mother-in-law you know just two months before she died you know what she's asking for where are my series When I read that verse to you, there are two things I want you to understand real quickly before we finish out this talk. Number one, um, there are three three statements in that one verse. And they are the three points you will need to build an intimate relationship. And the second thing is, it's gender neutral. Because you happen to have a mother talking to her son about how to pick a wife. You could just as easily have a a dad talking to a daughter about how to pick a husband. Because these three things are essential in a man or a woman. Let me read the verse to you again. She brings him good and not harm all the days of her life. Three things there. Number one, she will not bring him harm. He will not bring her harm. You know, there are many of you who are physicians and you know the first line of the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And so if, if I'm married to Mary Alice, that has got to be first on my agenda. If I want to build intimacy, first of all, I do no harm. Now, here's the thing. There are going to be times when you feel like doing harm. I'm not talking about physical harm. I'm just talking, that's a different thing. That's for a different talk. But I'm just talking about, you know, it's like, well, I need to straighten her out. And I don't like what she said. So consequently, if she lobs a grenade, I'm going to lob a grenade, a bigger grenade. No, here's the thing. To do no harm, you have to have a trait of your Father in heaven, which is mercy. Do you, do you know the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy means God doesn't give me what I do deserve. Grace is God giving me what I don't deserve. Well, see, mercy is, is like what we're talking about. Mercy does no harm. Mercy says even if you deserve me to say a cutting word, I'm not going to say a cutting word because I'm not going to do harm. Number two, she brings him good. He brings her good. That is grace. Mercy is not doing what a person does deserve. Grace is doing what a person doesn't deserve. Now, can you imagine, here's the thing, can you imagine a man and a woman in a relationship where he is saying, I am not going to do you any harm, and I'm going to find ways to do you good, and she is saying, I'm not going to do you harm, I'm going to find ways to do you good. You you think intimacy is going to happen there? I do, and I'll tell you something, this is for a different day, but sex becomes very different in that environment. You're like, wow, you know, <laughs> you know, I got this, I got this film. My wife and I are gonna watch, and you know, hey, listen, forget that, man. If you if you want sex, if you want great sex, how about you just both say to yourself, I'm not gonna do you any harm, and I'm gonna find ways to doing you good. Then you'll really experience physical intimacy because it'll be an expression of true intimacy and not a fraud. Number three, she does him good and not harm all the days of his life. He does her good and not harm all the days of his life. Now, you say, wait a minute, Mark. We're lost there because we have bad days. That's not what I'm talking about here. Everybody's going to have bad days. What this means is this is a commitment. I'm going to do you good and not harm, and I'm here to stay. And, and, And again, there are exceptions to this. If you're dealing with somebody who's an adulterer or abusive or something. That's, that's, that's for another talk. But I'm talking about you're, you're a couple and you're saying, we want to be intimate and I will do you good and not harm. And even if you have a bad day, I'm still here to stay. You know, I didn't say this in the other two services last night, but one of the greatest, in fact, probably the first motivational speaker who was worldwide, um, he's passed now. But I heard him give a talk, and he, at that point, had been married 60 years. And he said, you know, I speak all the time, and I tell people I've been married 60 years, and people will come up to me afterwards and say, you must have loved each other a lot to stay together for 60 years. And he said, we didn't stay together because we love each other. He said, we love each other because we stayed together. Well, that's it. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, I pray for everyone gathered here, single, married, dating, struggling. We all struggle. Help us to receive your word. And now, Father, in this next moment, I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to all of us in Jesus' name. Would you just stay where you are with heads bowed? I want to go back to a part of the message where I said God is not infatuated with any of us. He knows everything about us. And he wants to have an everlasting relationship with us. Man, if you're here today and you say, Mark, I want to know God. I want to be sure I'm going to heaven. I, I, I realize God's not infatuated with me, but how do I get connected with God? Well, it's interesting that you ask that because in the Bible, the word is always believe or ask. In other words, it's a free gift to receive God's forgiveness. It's a free gift to receive heaven for eternity. Jesus paid for it on the cross. And God loves you so much that he has this offer on the table that if by faith you would believe and ask Jesus, he would come into your life. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer. These are not magic words. But I'm going to pray a prayer that asks. And I'll say each line slowly. And if you decide you want to own it and say it to God, then you can say it with me. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can just pray it in your heart. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I cannot fix myself. But I heard today that you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe he arose from the grave. I believe his blood paid for my sins. I ask for forgiveness. I ask for everlasting life. Thank you in Jesus' name. You say, Mark, I don't even know what I just did. Well, you just prayed the greatest prayer of your life. All you have to do is go to any info center, whether you're in South or North. Go to any info center. Just take your Talk To Us card. Even if you don't have a Talk To Us card, just go back and say, I pray with Mark. They will not hassle you or stalk you. They have a gift bag. One of the things in the gift bag is a New Spring Bible, just like I preach from, a DVD, and a book I wrote, just to help. It's free. It will not cost you anything. Nobody will hassle you. Just go back and say, I pray with Mark. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next weekend.